Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. It's nice to have you back, Abby, after a, uh, a long um, little vacation. But you're not back yeah. for good yet. Explain. Right. I mean, I for people who don't know yet, I'm sure they do if they listen to this show, I've been on maternity leave um, since the beginning of June, and I will still be on maternity leave uh, throughout the summer. I wanted to take a break, and it's kind of... Um, a very bittersweet thing to say that as I'm celebrating life at home with the birth of my child, um, I wanted to come on to give a special Media Roots tribute to my friend and colleague Michael Jamal Brooks and commemorate the loss of a friend. So it's a it's a really hard time, even though something really great has happened in my personal life. This year has been really rough and with the shocking passing of Michael Brooks, it, I felt like I had to come back um, to give my own personal tribute to his life, his work, his legacy, and just kind of talk about who he was as a person to me and to so many others with you, Robbie. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was absolutely shocking. I've Sadly, I learned about it happening while I was live streaming and I think I found out before you did, Abby, like a couple minutes before, and I, and I texted mom during the live stream, and I said, please tell Abby, and I was just, it, it, I still can't process it as I'm sitting here talking to you. Um, it still doesn't feel mm-hmm. real. I'm sure it's like that for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. For someone to pass away suddenly at 36 years old is, it's devastating beyond belief. It's the saddest, I mean, it's the most tragic form of someone dying, because at least, you know, if someone has a terminal illness or if someone has health problems, you have some kind of expectation that they might not be around forever, you know, but you have, you take life for granted for the most part. And these young people, these passionate people in the scene, and Michael Brooks was one of the most passionate people from our generation of indie alt media journalists. And, and for someone like that to die suddenly, like it's, it's, it's just, it really brings everything home. I mean, not just for your own mortality, but how much he meant to the scene, how many people sort of relate to them, you know, themselves to his position in this world, looked up to him. It's, it created such an incredibly big void. We're going to be feeling that loss for literally years. I mean, that's how important he was in this left alt media scene. Uh, absolutely. And it's such a small world that the passing of someone as gigantic as him um, and not gigantic in terms of like material gains, like Twitter followers or YouTube subscribers. It was his presence, his power, his passion, um, his intellectual curiosity and courage and internationalism, really. Um, the empathy that he portrayed and relayed when he covered such a wide variety of topics and was able to kind of bridge so many things on the left in a space that's so toxic and so divisive. He bypassed all of that in a way that I really admire and look up to. And I feel like all of us need to kind of take away that lesson that we need to embrace each other's differences and unite and build upon that to a movement that can actually win. And that's really what he was all about. Um, He was my friend. He was my colleague. Just a couple days ago, we lost him, as you mentioned, the tragically young age of 36. And for people who don't know yet his sister confirmed it to be a blood clot in his throat something completely random bizarre it could happen to anyone at any time 
He was very active. He ran a lot. In fact, he, he pretty much wore Adidas tracksuits every day with like big gold <laughs> chains, like look like a Beastie Boy, um, someone in uncut gems. But um, <laughs> but he, you know, he was an awesome. He had an awesome style, and he had a unique style, and it was really just him. Um, it really just like it was his essence, and it was just really fun. Um, but that's how bizarre this whole thing is. Is that. It was so random, Robbie. It had nothing to do with COVID, um, and it just happened to him. And I don't know how quickly it happened, but he was gone like that. It's something that could happen to anyone, and the fact that it happened to literally one of the best people I know, not just on a personal level, but just in this space, on a journalism level, in, in this media world that's so small that it feels like your brother, another one of our siblings, is gone. And and. I'm not overstating that. It really is such a a hit um, because so many people, as we talk about on this podcast all the time, so many people have lost the plot and so many people kind of don't have a sense and a, and a solid grasp or foundation on like analyzing politics in the Trump era. And he did. He really, really fucking did. Um, yeah. And the fact that, you know, Henry Kissinger is still alive and all of these fucking war criminals and just all these horrible, horrible people have the ability to live out the rest of their lives. And like the fact that Michael's gone, it's just it's too much to bear. It is. I mean, I want people to also, you know, celebrate his life because and celebrate mm-hmm. the kind of energy and just his per- whole personality. I mean, all, as a pl- player in this scene, I mean, just watching his videos, it's not just that he's putting out positive energy and that he's, you know, smiling and laughing a lot more than the average, you know, podcaster per- person who's as smart and as brilliant as he was analyzing politics. But one of the th- like takeaways for me is that he was always seemed like he was just having a fucking good time, like on his, on his show. Like he was, just always having a great time laughing, you know, making biting insults to each other. Sometimes his co-hosts would, you know, they would go back and forth and kind of rib each other. It would always just felt like he knew how to have a good time. And I don't know, you know, maybe he, maybe he had other aspects of his personal life where he wasn't always having a good time. I don't, I didn't, I didn't know him as well as you did, Abby. I mean, I didn't know him personally at all. I should just state that, but you could just feel that joy Whenever you're mm-hmm. watching him, even when he was just bashing Dave Rubin and saying some of the meanest right. shit you can imagine <laughs> about him, it was done in this like joyful, everybody join in. It's not, we're not here to rag on someone. It was more just like, we're here to just like have a good time and like talk about right. how stupid this shit is. Like, it's insane. <laughs> and he captured that energy in a way better than pretty much any other commentator that I've seen, like, cause it was so authentic. It's not, it wasn't a performance, right. you know, other people do it in a performative way. They'll have these edited YouTube videos where they'll, you know, jump cut themselves talking about some clip in the media. That wasn't Michael Brooks style. He was a real authentic person who had these strong ideas. He was extremely obviously frustrated and not pleased at the intellectual dark web for getting as big as it did. And he caused permanent damage to it. And in a way that he probably wouldn't have been able to if it was pure, purely venomous. Um, and you watch like maybe one out of every 20 clip and you're like, wow, Michael Brooks and Sam are like, you know, spewing a lot of venom at Dave or whatever. It's like you don't understand how joyful the whole experience was also for right. them. It was like 
it was just like almost like you're just sort of like, hey, check out this new Dave Rubin clip so we can all just fucking laugh at it. And at a certain point, it was like, wow, these two guys and Brooks are actually causing real permanent damage to this phony facade that is the intellectual dark web through humor, through insults, through like really crushing analysis, through brilliant writings. As I didn't even realize, Michael wrote a whole book on the intellectual dark web until after he passed that's absolutely brilliant. Um, and I think that's one thing I'm taking away from this is it's that feeling of joy in, in, in doing this kind of work. And I don't, I, I have to admit, I don't feel joyful a lot doing this kind of work. So it's something that I think we all sort of need to learn from is like, how can you stay as sort of keep up that kind of energy and bring joy to people, even when you're right. attacking people? Like, so there's a whole, I don't know, there's a whole thing about his life and how he operated that I think, you know, a lot of people can learn from, really. Right. And he had a kind of this revolutionary optimism that goes along with what you're saying. This oh, my God. Yeah. Joyful outlook uh, and just kind of hilariousness um, that he approached every topic with. Not only was he an ingenious comedian, which we'll get into later and how, you know, he got involved with Sam Cedar and, and all the impressions that he did, which are absolutely mind blowing. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, just this hilarity um, where he would just have this uproarious laughter, you know, throwing his head back, <laughs> like just guffawing <laughs> and and didn't need to edit himself, didn't need to, you know, like you said, um, have this kind of tight package where he's presenting this narrative. He was really authentic and he was able to just kind of let himself go, even if that meant long pauses, even if that meant collecting his thoughts um, because he wanted to be relatable, like he was relatable to everyone. And his access to these ideas, as big as they are, and as kind of complicated as they are, they were accessible to everyone, no matter what level you are on, on learning about Marxism or learning about really the intellectual dark web or how these ideas were manifest. I mean, he, he was so approachable in the way that he presented them. And again, with a sense of comedy and not taking himself too seriously. And absolutely, we should learn from that. And I think his spirituality which is something that I want to get into as well, is something that he uh, differentiated from a lot of leftists who are kind of staunchly atheist. Um, and he embraced that as well. I mean, he talks a lot about how spirituality impacted him and how he practices spirituality in his life. He went to kind of week-long meditation retreats over the last 10 years where he would spend a week not speaking. How did that instruct his philosophies? How did that instruct his wisdom? And that's something that is really interesting as well, and that I would like to look into and like to be more open to. Would, was he like a self-identified Buddhist, or did he have like a specific way of identifying his his spirituality? Good question. Good question. I I don't know. I just know that he he went to a lot of like um, he had like a life coach and a spiritual advisor that his sister talked about on the Majority Report live stream. I'm not sure what affiliation or or you know if there was any in terms of what he um, identified as. The spiritual current plays out in your work. You can hear it when you talk about Cornel West, when you talk about Marianne Williamson, but I think there's generally a principle here that's of interest to you. And I, and I wish you would talk about it more explicitly, you know, and I know that that's hard to do without alienating or isolating some people that maybe you're actually trying to build kind of gradual bridges with. But I, I, because you don't, I don't get a sense of how central it is 
to you? And I'm interested. Well, it's, it's hard because, I mean, partially it, it is something that's of a lot of interest to me. And I do have, um, I mean, basically, particularly in, in, in like I've been doing some form of, of Vipassana practice since I was a teenager. Can you say what that, I mean, so I that's, so that's mindfulness. People yeah. think, so I, and I still kind of use that like classical term because I, again, you know, it was Massachusetts Western setting, but I didn't study it like in a stress relief clinic kind of way. Right. So I've gone on a bunch of like 10 day meditation retreats and sort of taken some teachings with teachers that, you know, have definitely put in a lot of time in places like you know, Burma and India and so on. And they're teaching from like the kind of classical Buddhist texts and much more modernized Burmese teachings. Um, and then I, I actually have somebody that I, that I work with, uh, who is this woman, Susan Green, a huge influence on me. Does a, who's in a sort of more like Indian, um, tradition. But part of the reason, I mean, there's a couple of different reasons I don't talk about it so much. And, and, and one is because I, I have these influences and I, and I think they're important and they, they matter to me, but I also, you know, I definitely don't necessarily take on any of the cosmologies and metaphysics of these things. And I'm not opposed to them, but it would just, I don't, right. I have a very agnostic relationship to it. So that's one. And I also have like a certain allergy. I do have some, I've, I've been a fair amount around the culture of like Western people adopting like Eastern and now actually like in the ayahuasca scene, like mm-hmm. kind of, you know, South American or, you know, like first people's like kind of like identities. And I, I find that whole, not because I even have like, there's all the sort of like obvious political objections to it and cultural appropriation and so on. And some of that is real in there. But to me, it's even just more elemental. Like there's something that is just like when I see somebody adopting purely and uniformly their imitation or idea of what some other idealized country or world is mm-hmm. in whatever fashion that is. You know, I mean, some people go to the Middle East and have a thing with Islam. Some people, you know, it, it could happen a variety of different ways. I find that like very... Uh, off-putting. And, and, and then, you know, the third, I think, kind of hesitation is I, you don't want to ever be, and I think I've actually been getting better at this, which is that in some ways speaking about spirit, speaking about some of the spiritual stuff is actually a great doorway into humility and talking about our limitations, but you never want to be in a position of being like, well, you know, I've done a lot of meditating, so <laughs> I think I have some insight on this. It's like, it's like yeah. if anything, it's like, yo, I'm actually quite aware of what a mess I can be because I do this stuff. And I actually wish we all could be more aware of what a mess we are uh, as well through some of this kind of inquiry. Yeah. You know, that gives them a unique insight, I think, in terms of being able to criticize and sort of break down Sam Harris's whole grift. Exactly. Because Sam Harris is a Buddhist or is like an atheist who like practices meditation and like, and like expresses like Buddhist ideas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think Michael does a really good job. I mean, he, he essentially starts his book, and just so people understand what book I'm talking about, in his book, Against the Web, A Cosmopolitan Answer to the New Right, he does a very eloquent job in the opening of the book explaining how, you know, this sort of militant atheism gives these people sort of a shield 
where they, you know, they're, they're like, oh, I reject bad ideas. I reject dogma in religion. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing Michael here, but he's essentially saying that this sort of a, this militant atheism blind spot, what it, what it allows these people to do is make it seem like only religion is the domain of bad ideas. And it gives them sort of the shield from defending like bad ideas in society that aren't religious based. Like Tim Harris will defend torture or racial profiling or the Iraq war. And he does a really good job of sort of breaking down how they use their atheism, you know, as a way to make these other horrible ideas seem value valuable to people. And that's what the real danger is with these people. And and he the way and the strength of opening the book up with that argument, I think, um, it's just really captivating. And I think a lot of people who are you know, either atheist or not atheist will see that argument and be like, yeah, he he's kind of, I mean, he is right, even if they're a Sam Harris fan. So he's already sort of bludgeoning you with these really strong logical arguments like against Sam Harris in the intro to the book. And, you know, that's not easy to do. Like, I, there's mm-hmm. a reason why I haven't done that because I'm not a good enough writer. I would probably just get super angry. You know, Sam Harris is a total piece of shit. I hate him. And I wouldn't know how to like, weaponize my actual critiques in an eloquent and articulate way. And that's a skill that Michael had in spades. It's incredible that he wrote an entire book deconstructing the IDW. And I like how in the intro also, he's just like, this might not be relevant even like in a year. He's like, but these ideas live on. And the fact that this kind of embodies what the new right is and this trajectory of this new kind of movement um, that is encapsulating so much energy with disaffected youth is something very important to address and deconstruct. And and he also had this weekly segment where he would kind of deconstruct right-wing arguments with philosopher Ben Burgess. And that's really important. And people don't do that enough. And yeah, we can talk shit about Sam Harris all day long. God knows he's a piece of shit. But the fact that he really took on that intellectual challenge is huge, you know, and I recommend everyone, please, please buy the book. It's really important that you read the book, um, keep it on the bestseller list, buy it and support him so his work can live on in that sense. Um, And please, everyone watch the Majority Report live stream from their channel where they did a four-hour tribute show to him where a lot of people are calling in, a lot of his colleagues and friends spoke it was really heartwarming. It was very, very cathartic to kind of cry and reminisce alongside all of them because in the time of COVID, he he can't have a proper funeral, right? And so this is the best that we can do is really just listen to these tribute shows um, and understand how profound his legacy was in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think it can't be stressed enough how close to home this felt for people because there have been other, you know, prominent left academics or people in this scene who were revered, who have passed on Howard Zinn, you know, William Blum was very personally sad for us. We had interviewed him. It's totally different feeling when somebody like their their entire body of work behind them, you know, like they're at an age where it's like, you can look back at their entire body and be like, this was a really big contribution. But the fact that Michael he was just getting started before man. he really hit his peak. He was just getting fucking started. Yeah. And that's the one thing I think people need to also see here is that this was a man from our generation of independent journalism who had gotten to the point of writing a, you know, a book and 
he probably had like you know multiple other books in the chamber. He probably had notes, mm-hmm. outlines, ideas. That's a huge accomplishment to write a book, and all of us could get to that level to actually write a book. You know, we would all be very sort of proud of ourselves and 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 be like, wow, I've accomplished something you know really important. Like I finally sort of this is what all my workers culminate towards, and it's such a loss. And I think this really just brings home to all of us from his generation that this could happen to any one of us. You know, the, life is short. Uh, that this world of independent journalism, um, it means a great deal to people. And even though people like Michael Brooks were not recognized by mainstream media, they're, they almost hit, hit people on a deeper level. And not just his fans and his audience, but other people in the scene who aspired to be what Michael had become. I just think it's it's going to really affect people for years to come that this was like we're really the first of someone in our generation of independent journalism to pass away like this and it's such a small community you know it's such a small circle that it really really has such a huge impact um and speaking of his book about the idw i mean the last thing that i said to him was like the second i get back from maternity leave you're going to be on Media Roots Radio to talk about the book. And he was so unpretentious. He never even pushed it on anyone. It was just kind of there. Yeah. You know, he had he had written this book. He never went on a giant book tour about it. He never was trying to push to get on other people's shows. Instead, he was just more interested in lifting other people up and, and promoting their work. And I think that just really says a lot about who he is and was. And every day I've woken up thinking that it's still this kind of nightmare. You know, that he's gone every night. I've been dreaming about him. I'm talking to him in my dreams. It's surreal. It's an ongoing nightmare to acknowledge that he's not really here with us anymore. And what's even more distressing is the fact that, you know, this 24-hour news cycle kind of came and went. And yeah, he was given an enormous um, accolades from all these people, but I hate even signing on and going online and seeing that his name is no longer like gracing the presence of our screens. It's just like, it's like the world has moved on and we shouldn't because we need to, like you said, this is going to affect us for years. And it's not enough to just give like a 24 hour moment to remember him. Like he's gone forever and we need to all like take a step back from putting our output of work and like watch all of his material. That's the very least that we can do is actually go to his YouTube channel, watch his material and read his book and then approach our work in a with a better understanding of, of who he was, what his work meant and how we can build upon it. Yeah, that's that's one thing I've been thinking about is how can we build upon Michael's work? I mean, like everybody in this scene, you know, I don't align with anybody 100 percent. But the thing that I align with Michael on 100 percent was his aggressiveness and his laser focus on basically breaking apart the idiocy of the intellectual dark web and these these people. Even seeing him and Sam turning towards the Weinstein bros, Eric and Brett Weinstein, sort of in the last few months was really exciting to me because I was like, they're doing exactly what no one else is doing right now. And mm-hmm. as much as I, you know, I, I I definitely agreed with Michael far more than I agreed with Sam. I mean, even, um, gosh, I forgot her name, the, the co-host, one of their other co-hosts. Jamie. Jamie, yeah. She was, she was kind of ribbing Sam because she was like, Michael was always there for me to like call out Sam for being a boomer neoliberal. 
<laughs> and, and you know, I mean, because he's older. Like Sam is older. Um, he he was more, you know, and 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 it was interesting to see that generation gap sort of between him and Sam and how Michael would try to pull him more left and how Sam would sometimes be, you know, get stuck sort of in those neoliberal pitfalls. But both of them together, you know, regardless of their differences or my differences with Sam, it was still very exciting. And like, I was totally there for them pivoting to the Weinstein bros and being like, look, now we're going to go after these guys because they're frauds. And that's, that's, that's really obvious to anyone sort of looking at this from our perspective, but to have them, all of a sudden really engage them then to have the Weinstein bros to start to, you know, comment back. It was a really exciting for me. And I was like, wow, these, this is Michael Brooks and is the per is the person that needs to sort of be in this driver's seat. Like he's the one. And I was excited that he was taking that position. So like now that he's gone, it's, it's almost kind of like, I feel even just such a void in that particular area where I'm like, I want to, as a tribute to Michael, go after these guys like 10 times harder than they've ever been gone after before. So that's my little way of I'm going to sort of, you know, pay tribute to him and carry on that work of his. Yeah. And, and after you read his book, I'm sure you'll be armed with a kind of a better way to even do I that. I can't fucking you know? wait. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted to talk briefly about how I met Michael and what he meant to me. Um, and not make it too uh, too much about me at all. But the only reason that I want to say this is because I think it speaks volumes to who he was, you know, why he was such an amazing person. First of all, I've always loved Sam Cedar, of course, you know, ever since his days on Sirius Radio. And I never really watched enough of Majority Report because I just had so much going on. Selfishly, I, you know, I had Empire Files. We're doing this podcast. There's just a lot going on to catch up on other people's content all the time. I always knew of Michael Brooks. I thought he was funny as fuck. I knew that he was Sam's co-host, but I'm sad to say I didn't even know he had his own show until like early last year. And once I did realize that he had his own show and the kind of content that he was producing, I realized he probably outgrew Majority Report because of Sam's limitations with like foreign policy in particular. Michael obviously was like much broader in his analysis and, um, became more militantly socialist later on and like unapologetically so and the michael brooks show became heavily focused on internationalism and anti-imperialism what i loved about it the most is that you know he focused honed in on a lot of issues about the global south about africa and a lot of other foreign policy issues that i felt other than empire files and a very very few other independent journalist outlets no one covered right Absolutely. And that, I mean, that was something really noticeable. I mean, he would, he would focus in on these areas that usually only like people who only do anti-imperialist work focus on. Right. And he, his show didn't only focus on that, but he would also cover that stuff. And yeah, it was, it was a sort of a breath of fresh air, you know, when going on YouTube, because how many people on YouTube in general are even doing anti-imperialism? It's like, no, barely any, almost nobody. And I think that's why he liked Empire Files. You know, I mean, it's it was really, really hard to look back at our text thread and DMs, but I finally did to prepare for this podcast. And it was really overwhelming to even remember how we became friends, how quickly it happened. Um, I just followed him early last year. He immediately wrote me saying, I'd love to have you on the show. And not only that, but he immediately wanted to talk on the phone. <laughs> wow. Um, but he broke the ice so quickly 
he wanted to initiate that contact in person. That expresses like what kind of person he is too, that he understood that the left, it's not some abstract notion. Yeah, it's really individualized and we all have like these personalized brands that we're trying to build up. But he understood that as a movement to win this, we need to relate to each other on a human and personal level and like get past that, you know, initial kind of block where you're like, well, I don't know this person. Yeah, I know them on Twitter or, or I know they're writing, but he was just like, let's actually connect as human beings and talk about these things and understand where each other is coming from. And I, I mean, it was an instantaneous connection. We talked for over an hour on the phone that first time and it was incredible. And one thing that stood out the most to me is the fact that he agreed with everything that we talk about, Robbie, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, the, the kind of anti-democrat current going yeah. through the left circles, like how destructive that is, like how important it is to criticize Trump, talk about imperialism, talk about Trump's foreign policy, um, the Tulsi Gabbard thing. I mean, <laughs> one other thing that I was just dying laughing at. And, and again, he gave me the confidence to really go after Tulsi Gabbard, speak my mind about Tulsi Gabbard and say, I don't give a fuck about the backlash that I'm going to encounter from Tulsi Gabbard fans. Um, but in that, in, in these conversations that we had, we would just constantly send each other jokes about Tulsi and, you know, like her thirst trap workout videos or whatever. And it was just, I was just dying <laughs> laughing, looking back at, at, at him. We just ragged on her so much and it was just hilarious. Um, but he was really, he was upset at the same things that we were upset about, right? And he wasn't afraid to tackle those, no matter what backlash he got from her followers too. And and I appreciate that he he kind of let me have that platform on his show as well. One other thing that was really amazing to me is when I was bringing Gaza Fights for Freedom to New York, where I knew that he lived, um, I tried to come on his show. It didn't work out. I had very limited time there. But I asked him if he wanted to come to Gaza Fights for Freedom, and he said, absolutely. Um, he would come, and I think what was distinct about that is that a lot of other people, you know, I invited a lot of other people in the New York area, and, and no one was interested, right? And Michael Brooks immediately, without question, without hesitation, said, absolutely, on a Friday night or whenever we had the show, he, he showed up by himself. I think his girlfriend met him later in the audience, but he came by himself not knowing anyone. <laughs> came to the green room, just kind of was milling around, had this giant backpack on, you know, and and was just there, like super humble, um, super approachable to all the people that were hanging out. And the fact that he jumped on the opportunity to come and watch like a two-hour movie, you know, barely knowing me, um, taking time out of his extremely busy life and now looking back now that he's passed on to see how many friends he had, how much work he had going on. He was constantly reading, constantly engaged in the struggle. And the fact that he took the time out to come see the movie was extraordinary to me. Um, and he he sat there in the front row, nodding enthusiastically throughout the, the entire Q&A session, had me on his show after um, to promote the movie. I remember he had a little poster up for Gaza Fights for Freedom behind him when he was doing his live streams for quite a bit after seeing the movie. Oh, wow. That's so and cute. It is. It, it really was. And he really, really loved the movie. He covered my lawsuit, suing the state of Georgia, um, gave me a lot of accolades for that on his show. And it was just really interested in following up about the perspective that Empire Files had specifically on Trump's 
facade of anti-interventionism, right? Yeah. And breaking through that rhetoric. And he, I don't know anyone else who really was. <laughs> like, that. that's what's so incredible about I it. Know. And, and the And the Palestine issue, too, is so incredible because he grew up um, in the Jewish tradition. I think that he was a red diaper baby. That's probably why his middle name was Jamal. Um, he really understood the concept of Palestine. And he really had a great analysis about it. And I wanted to to play a quick clip of him at a university answering a question about his Jewish tradition and what he thinks about Palestine today. My Jewish values teach me to oppose apartheid. The situation in the West Bank is, I mean, it is literally Jim Crow-like. And Gaza is, I mean, it's it's just an atrocity. So that's not something that anybody could reasonably ask me to support. It's not a complex issue. That's the big thing. It's super simple. There's one group that has enormous power. It's the most powerful country in the Middle East. It's backed by the United States. It acts on another population of people with total impunity and is never held accountable for anything. So there's no symmetry in the relationship, period. So for me, my politics are built on a base of you know, economic justice and actually really like anti-racism as in some ways as distinct from some of this sort of woke stuff in a way. But when I was, I was already, look, I grew up, you know, I was pretty connected to left politics. So I always knew growing up about the travesty that was the human rights situation there. And I knew that people had think people I admired, like Nelson Mandela, said, you know, South Africa is going to not be properly free until the Palestinians are free. Uh, let's let's be real she here. I mean, there was one group that wasn't included in that resolution, and that was uh, the Palestinians as a people, where regular racism and dehumanization towards them is entirely accepted. The reality is is that Ilan Omar is correct on the merits. She's correct on the policy. Saying that she said this comment about dual allegiance is a great leap to begin with. And I have to say, I find it extraordinary that people on the right, who sometimes accurately, by the way, not always, but sometimes accurately, say people on the left, you know, jump to accusations too quickly of various bigotries and read into things. They've been reading into every single thing that the Congresswoman has said from the beginning, most of which are substantive critiques of a sovereign nation state that happens to administer a horrific regime that violates people's rights on a daily basis in Gaza, the West Bank, and even inside Israel in some respects. The new indictment about Netanyahu isn't just garden variety corruption. It involves actually undermining democracy. So I support Ilan Omar. I don't buy, and, and I also, in fact, support uh, Corbyn, in fact. And the reality is, is that these things are gonna become debated on the merits. And we're not gonna have a false equivalency and actually drag down the profoundly serious issue of anti-Semitism by equating it with all criticism of a sovereign nation state that administers apartheid in reality. Forgot to say as a Jew. So that's true, but I'm tired of playing that game. Like I really, no, I know you are, but I mean like, I I do have a critique of identity politics, frankly. And I do think that Part of my real allergy does go back to conversations about Israel where just identity and standpoint epistemology superseded everything else. And we can all walk and chew gum at the same time. If you're not indulging in anti-Semitism, and it's pretty obvious when people are, frankly, uh, you should be able to have an opinion and a robust critique of Israel. 
uh, and and you know this actually and in my mind it applies to plenty of other categories right like no one is going to say like oh you're anti-muslim if you can you know can uh, critique the record of saudi arabia or the iranian government it's ridiculous his understanding of palestine is really great right and and i loved what he said like the ethno-nationalist idea is such a babyish and childish one especially if you're talking about rejecting identity politics it's like the ultimate um, identity taken to the extreme where you have like a, a state that's just constantly oppressing this marginalized population. And one thing that I really like that he said is like, it's extremely simple. Cause that's all, that's what I say too. It's like, this isn't a complex issue. They paint it as a complex issue. And he's like, this is extremely uncomplicated. <laughs> like, um, and I appreciate that he had that clarity. And one last thing that I'll say about my personal relationship with him is that other than me saying I wanted to interview him for Media Roots Radio was him asking if I could come on his show this month, even though I was on maternity leave. And, you know, I didn't answer him. And of course, I'm just going to sit there forever and be like, I should have said this. I should have said that. I should have interviewed him earlier for Media Roots Radio. We can't think that way because I think that just the appreciation that we had for each other and wanting to actually have me on his live show. That was another thing that I forgot is that he actually had an Austin event with Anna Kasparian and him where I was supposed to fly out seven months pregnant. I would not have done this for anyone else in the world. <laughs> like, like I would not have even considered flying out of state to Austin seven months pregnant to do anyone's live show. I wanted to be on fucking maternity leave back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, but certainly wasn't doing like video appearances at all, right? I was trying to hide this. But there was something about him that was such an incredible and great honor to even be asked and included and to even be considered on the same intellectual level as him and Anna, who I really, really respect. And they really provided me such sanity during the election cycle, the primary. They were really great friends and, and everything that they, you know, they kind of brought out the best of each other whenever they talked about anything that was going on. And so it was just such an incredible honor to be part of that show. And unfortunately, COVID happened and they had to shut down the show. And it's just so sad that that wasn't able to happen, that I wasn't able to go and get to know him better and to be there and to be part of, of his live experience. You know, please don't send me condolences. I was a friend of his, but I wasn't nearly as close with him as so many others were. And I think that just speaks again to how amazing of a person he was, the fact that he immediately reached out to anyone that he respected in the scene and wanted to include like in his circle. And that's a lot of people. That's a lot of fucking people. Um, he had so many, so many close friends that he he impacted. And his family needs the support the most. Um, his co-workers, of course, on the Majority Report and the Michael Brooks show are, are who needs love and support right now and need to hear from you. If you were impacted by him, I encourage you to reach out and, and see what you can do to commemorate him. Yeah. And I just want to I feel like I need to get this out of the way because a lot of people who listen to our podcast, Abby, one of their litmus tests is, you know, if you bought into Russiagate or not. And they, I think a lot of people tend to have written off any progressive or left commentator or platform that did cover Russiagate and that did sort of push that angle or narrative even a little bit. And admittedly, Majority Report did that. They deserve some criticism for that. However... I think it's it's quite telling to me when that's sort of your litmus test, when your litmus test isn't people who portray Trump as anti-war or people mm -hmm. who hoist up Tulsi Gabbard 
and dishonestly cherry pick her record to make her seem like she's anti-war. It's like, why isn't that your litmus test? Why would you write off Majority Report and everybody on it simply because they 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 misstepped on Russiagate when they're actually one of the only channels or outlets or Michael Brooks especially pushing back on some of these things that have actually infected the left like a dangerous toxic virus in terms of believing Trump's anti-war or believing Tucker's good. I mean, these are all things that the majority report was pushing back on very aggressively and hardly anyone else was in, in terms of people who had credibility on the left, like mainstream media would, but they don't have credibility, but people on the left kind of let that go or let that get carried away and majority report never stood for it. And I think that's, I, I don't, I feel like people would throw that, they throw the baby out with the bathwater over the Russiagate thing, but I'm vehemently opposed to the Russiagate propaganda, and I could still very clearly see the value that Majority Report provided out there for people on the left to sort of strengthen their arguments against intellectual dark web people, against false narratives about Trump being anti-war. Well, no, you're, you're right. It's like this absolutism that has infected the left that he was also very opposed to that I just find absurd. I don't care that they believed in Russiagate. <laughs> like the fact that you would like, quote unquote, cancel someone or, or be like, you're a fucking shill and a sh sellout, just like the Tulsi Gabbard thing to us. It's like, you're a sellout if you don't like Tulsi Gabbard. It's like, I don't give a fuck. And the fact that you can't actually overlook a disagreement with someone who has such an incredible body of work to offer and to help build upon what the foundation of this movement should be, like it's ridiculous and it's absurd and it's insulting. Well, let's talk about the the Tulsi thing really quick. Do you want to just get that out of the way? How he was one of the only people on the left to be like totally just yeah. outright she's a Michael, fraud. Michael Brooks was right about Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there's these rare moments, you know. Even let's just say on the libertarian side, even there's only like one guy who's a prominent libertarian who let Tulsi have it too, and that was Scott Horton, you know. And I don't, I vehemently disagree with him on a lot of stuff, and I'm sure you do too. But it's like, why were why was Michael Brooks like one of the only people on the left really willing to take a stand? And it's and it was kind of instantly revealed to us. Where it's like, oh wow, there's people out there who are literally willing to smear Brooks, me, and you, Abby, because we do not support this fraudulent candidate. Like immediately after you appeared on the Michael Brooks show, someone actually asked Twitter. They said, I want to start an investigation on Abby to find out who's funding her. Because that's how incredulously like in denial they were about Tulsi Gabbard. They couldn't understand why someone like you would not support her. And the fact that people went into that territory, like who's funding Abby or actually me, I got accused of being CIA yesterday, Abby, because of what mm -hmm. I said about Tulsi Gabbard. So I, that to me was where were those moments where when Michael Brooks was not choosing to be polite that he was really effective. Like he really mm -hmm. sort of riled these people up and maybe hopefully even challenged some of them. You know, I mean, sometimes when people get really angry and say, who's funny Nabby or Robbie must be CIA. Cause he doesn't like Tulsi to me, that almost speaks to like a painful cognitive dissonance that that person might be experiencing to go to such an extreme where they would say something like that. It's almost to me speaks to like, we, I think maybe we kind of got to them. Maybe we planted some seeds in their brain where they're like, now realizing that they were wrong. They just can't fully admit it. So I just think that that was one, another thing Michael did that was important. You know, identifying right, Tulsi. Knows, 
God knows how much pushback he got, but the f- thing is, um, he never even engaged with these people. <laughs> like, he had a lot of strong words for Tulsi Gabbard, but I think that the difference between him and and a lot of us is that he wouldn't like waste his time yes. trying to be toxic or divisive toward her supporters. I mean, you know, he, he wouldn't want to reach out to someone like Michael Tracy, who's trying to tear down the movement right now, or Tulsi Gabbard personally, but I think that he would to her supporters to a certain extent. And I'm not talking about the supporters that you're talking about, which are like diehard, like you're a fucking shill if you don't like her. I think a lot of people who were captured by what they thought was a legitimate anti-war candidate, right? Without really understanding her record. They believe. And you can't blame them for wanting to believe. Like I could totally, if anti-war is your main issue, I totally understand why you would have been drawn to sort of Tulsi Gabbard's rhetoric. It makes sense to me. I totally get it. Right. Right. And I think that if he had harsh words for someone, he, he really used his show and his platform to have like a long form discussion and dialogue about what, those problems were in a constructive way. And if he had disagreements with people on the left, which he did often, he had them in a comradely way Yeah, where he approached those differences in a way that he can embrace the conversation with a clear understanding of where both of those people were coming from. And so that to me is something that we can really learn from as well. Um, sure. Not calling people out, this call out culture. And I'm not yeah. talking about people like Dave Rubin or, you know, any of these pieces of shit. Like he clearly had a lot of strong words for them. And uh-huh. that was some of his best work. I'm talking about people on the left that have a similar vision of the future yes. and the way that he approached those disagreements. And I'll, and I'll talk about one in particular, the right wing populism, Glenn Greenwald rising idea that I wanted to kind of relay what he said in one of his last shows about. But that is something that we all need to learn from, you know, Mm -hmm. bottom line. And that's something that I feel like I have not done enough. I've been kind of trapped in like the cesspool of like, who's fucking bad. And and if someone isn't like 100% pure on on these issues, then I'm writing them off. And that's not how I'm going to approach things anymore. I'm I'm absolutely not going to do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, it'll probably take me, I don't know if I'm there yet. But I mean, it depends on who it is, right? I mean, I, I guess it's all on a case by case basis, right? Um, because to me, there are sort of people who I think are still allies that are really saying things I don't like right now, and there's people who I think are actually not allies anymore and have actually allied with the other side. So I guess it would be more of a case by case basis. But well, for example, like Jacobin, like I see a lot of people on the left trashing Jacobin all the time. And that to me is garbage. Yeah. Like wholesale. Baby yes. out with the bathwater. Like, yes, a hundred percent. And current affairs, Nathan Robinson. I really appreciate Nathan Robinson's writing. I really appreciate Bhaskar Sankara's writing. Michael Brooks was working with Jacobin frequently. He had a show yeah, had on a there show. with Anna. Um, he, I guess he was a frequent contributor as well. And he was really good friends with the editor Bhaskar. And so to me, um, taking Michael's legacy beyond face value and understanding that he worked with a lot of these people should should make a lot of us reflect who are constantly trashing these outlets, right? Because whatever, they're, they're bourgeois or towing the CIA line. I mean, it's all just fucking, it, again, it's a case-by-case basis. And that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think it's selective. I mean, like I'll still promote, you know, vice um articles occasionally if i think that they're good like 
I don't think everyone who's ever wrote for the outlet is a bad person or is spewing propaganda. That's absolutely not the case. They've had thousands and thousands of writers. I mean, tens of thousands over the years. So, um, I mean, yeah, I think that that needs to be understood, but it also, you know, it's, it also shows how selective it is. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, because an outlet like Jacobin that maybe did tow some bad, you know, imperialist points of view. And I, I remember seeing some of their bad takes on Venezuela and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other outlets that people don't hold to the same standard that they still promote all the time, you know? So there right. is a double standard where it's like, oh, this is a CIA compromise outlet because they push Venezuelan regime change, but yet, you know, Sputnik or a different outlet isn't, even though they push like right. fascism sometimes. <laughs> right, so right. <laughs> it does beg the question, it's like, where are these people actually coming from? Or, or are they just sort of piling on because it's a left outlet? You kind of have to wonder, but I mean... There's truth in all these things, too. It's like democracy now, I can hardly watch it anymore because, in my opinion, the foreign policy stuff has veered so far away from what I'm aligned with. Um, But some of the segments they'll still do on like domestic stuff are great individually. So, again, you can't wholesale throw all the, you know, throw an entire outlet or a platform in the trash if it's still occasionally doing good things. But but I get where you're coming from about the absolutism. I mean... Um, there are a lot of people, I, I actually don't know very much about Jacob and I hardly look at it, so I can't really speak on it, but I agree with the general concept of what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I guess it goes far beyond that. And I'm talking about the DSA as well. And just the circles that Michael was active in, even though he was so staunchly anti-imperialist and even though he was very good on issues like Venezuela, it's like, why can't you be both? You know, you, you can embrace all of these outlets. You can still have a solid critique of them in a thoughtful way, which is what he did, not specifically about these institutions, but about just the yeah. ideas, the ideas. That's, and I think sometimes it, it does get challenging because it's like, how do you, like, how can you make an intelligent, thoughtful and aggressive critique against Jacobin, but also not feel like you would be, you know, personally bashing some of the people who are most prominent on, on it? Even an institution that seemingly is fully compromised, like Bellingcat, like there's one or two articles they've done. Like they did, Jason Wilson did one about the Boogaloo Boys, where I'm like, that's a decent article. I just wish it wasn't on this goddamn website that was funded by Google and the Atlantic Council, you know? Yeah. Um, And Jacobin put out a lot of great tributes to Michael. A lot of people who were writers there wrote beautiful things. I just wanted to read from Boscar, who's the editor. that they were working on a show together where Anna and Michael had a weekend show called Weekends. And even though the Michael Brooks show was growing rapidly and and was pretty much self-sufficient, Bhaskar asked him why he still wanted to go forward with this other show. And Michael said he wanted to help build institutions that would last. He believed in harnessing the abilities of large numbers of people and developing them as protagonists for a greater project, rather than relying on a handful of talented individuals. He hoped to train colleagues, show regulars into a stable that could take over from him within a year and a half. The dream of a vibrant community nurturing left media was fundamental to Michael's work, not because he aspired to be an influencer with a large individual platform, but because he understood how important it was to build the kind of bonds that you can't have political action without. It would be easy to attract passive consumers behind a product, far harder to help foster real change. I mean, how much does that just really encapsulate it all? 
And Megan Day, who I really like as well, wrote another beautiful tribute to him where she just said, you know, Michael paid close attention to who said what on the left. And he was always looking for refreshing new perspectives, new people who he could have on his show. Those were the only prerequisites for an invitation to appear. Not notoriety, not pedigree, not enormous Twitter following, but mental acquisitiveness and political commitment. He relied on his instincts. He often invited novice writers on him on the show to talk with him so long as they had written something that raised or worked through a compelling question. He developed an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of global movements against exploitation and oppression, which made him uniquely adept at discussing international current affairs. His global political coverage was unparalleled, and his passing constitutes a serious blow to the project of left internationalism. And of course, there's no better proof of this internationalism than Lula da Silva actually tweeting. I don't know if you saw that. Um, yeah, I did. Uh, you know, in memoriam to him, which I found incredible. And Michael would have loved that, of course, because that was his shining moment of his entire life, was interviewing his hero, who he called one of the greatest leaders, if not the greatest leader of the 21st century. And it's just absolutely amazing that Lula said, you know, I he was my friend. How could this be possible? And may his passion for social justice inspire millions around the world. I'm paraphrasing, but something to that nature. And just to go on to summarize Megan Day's article, she said, Michael wanted a confident left. Many of us do. But he understood better than most that the left is made up of people. If the left is to win, its people must summon the courage to try ambitious things. And that courage requires routine reinforcement from comrades and friends. His quiet acts of interpersonal graciousness were inseparable from his loftiest political aspirations. And that really says it all, too, like the fact that he was so willing to uplift everyone else, never making it about himself, never asking anything in return, never like, oh, I'll promote this if you do this, you know, all of this bullshit. It, it, he was so far above that. He was so unpretentious. And he was so responsive to his audience, like no matter who wrote him. And I've read dozens of accounts of his viewers saying like, yeah, I wrote him saying I was um, really uninspired and he helped me get the nerve up to cross into political action. Super you know? interactive. I mean, they were one of the first like super chat style shows I ever saw. And it wasn't just, you know, you could maybe criticize the whole super chat format. Like I can't, you know, I don't really have a leg to stand on to criticize it because YouTube totally took away my ability to because of copyright violation. And the and the model, you know, sometimes it's good. Like it does allow people to interact with the chat. But what was so cool about their show, and I don't know if Michael did this on his own show. He probably did, I'm assuming, is taking calls from people who disagreed with them like all the time. I mean, that was like one of their themes on their show that no one else does. Like a like an old school radio show. Caller, you're a Dave Rubin supporter, libertarian. Like, <laughs> what do you got to say? You know, and they would like, you know, sometimes it was biting, you know, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't be like super, super nice to these people, but it like at least would give people the floor. That's like something that's not, people don't even do that shit anymore. Right. Like flexing your muscle of disagreements. I mean, that takes skill, man. Like I wouldn't right. do that shit. Like. I I'd be I'd be nervous as fuck to do that, and right. plus I'd be worried that like you know I wouldn't be able to screen out all the trolls who are like coming on to like dunk on me and shit. They weren't scared of that at all, <laughs> and that's I mean that to me shows real chops, real skills. Like not there's no there's hardly anybody in this indie left alt media industry who has those that level of chops. I mean that's sort of something to behold. I think absolutely. 
And I think one other thing to understand about Michael and his output of work is how immense it was. Nathan Robinson of Current Affairs writes another great tribute for him where he focuses in on just what Michael covered this month. Just this month. Such a wide-ranging, broad range of topics, you know? I mean, in just the last three weeks, I just wanted to read a list of what Michael was covering on his channel. What a Joe Biden presidency would mean for left organizing. And I've watched all of these, by the way, and they're all incredible. And he has such salient insight um, that really gets so, so deep. The grift that is the Lincoln Project, which we've all seen on Twitter. Um, The possibilities for replacing corporate media. The Sopranos. He had a rant about the eviction crisis and what to do about it, the COVID response in the Indian state of Kerala, human rights abuses of the post-coup right-wing Bolivian government, the revolutionary politics of Nina Simone, the book White Fragility. This one was really great because it's so astute and really, really uh, hones in on like how institutions are co-opting the Black Lives Matter today movement today. Um, and this whole white fragility nonsense where, you know, you have this phenomenal cultural uprising about police brutality and racism, and it's being like funneled into these embarrassing cultural gestures. And as he says, the corporate training circuit. And Michael was really disgusted with the notion, as we all are, and I think that we need to really take heed of this, with the notion of taking on these massive social problems and making them about you as an individual, right? Your microaggressions how you're contributing to racism. This is not helping systemic change. This is not solving the problems, the deep-rooted problems that cause police brutality, that cause racism. You know, it's just, it's insulting. It's insulting. And this is like the problem with white liberalism today and why this guy, this author is gallivanting around and making it all about him and his book. And so it's a really, really great segment. I encourage everyone to watch that one. It goes on, possibilities for permanently ending world hunger. Of course, he covered Israel's ongoing annexation of Palestinian territory very frequently. The phony populism of Tucker Carlson. Are these Um, segment titles that you're reading? Yes. Yeah. I just want to say really quickly, I mean, honestly, so when I saw his segment of the ending the world hunger pop up, like like that that must have popped up maybe like a couple weeks before he passed, I think. Mm-hmm. on my YouTube feed because I had just subscribed subscribed to his channel. I remember almost kind of having this reaction to it like wow, that's so optimistic. Like he's so not not like he's so different in the way I look at things, just like being struck by just like sort of almost like this childlike optimism of like how to imagine the world being this mm-hmm. much better mm-hmm. place than it is and I remember just sort of taking a pause for a second and thinking like oh wow, that's so That's just, you just don't see that from people in our scene, you know? And then I just, it was just a passing thought that I had. And, you know, it's just, there's just nobody, we sort of need some of that. I don't know. I I just think it it just, it makes me feel like a certain way, like in a like positive way. Like it actually gives me some hope. (laughs) No, you're, you're totally right. And we, this is the thing that Michael understood and that exactly segments like that really, elucidate is that we have hammered home so much all of the fucking problems that we face all the negative horrific aspects of this planet in our reality it's time to reimagine and have this optimism about how we can build a better future reimagine what the future could be like 
And he was such an avid reader where he would constantly cite authors, um, writers, and intellectuals, philosophers. He would just like name drop people constantly because he was constantly just consuming literature. He, he had this insatiable like hunger um, for reading, you know, and, and every single topic that he approached, it's not superficial at all. It actually goes super, super deep. And it's really, really obvious that he knew the material inside and out. And this is whether he was talking about Ecuador or Africa or Marx, you know, I mean, it, it, it really showed. And it's something that really made me realize that I need to do because I feel like all I'm doing is going through these cycles of not only the same topics, but the same kind of negativity when I approach these topics instead of having an outlook that it could reimagine something differently. Yeah. And I just wanted to read us just a short passage from Michael's book um, that to me shows how sort of relatable he was to people that he wasn't just only interested in reaching like the far left or people who, you know, um, constantly only want to talk about, see things through identity politics so this is actually really interesting to me that I, I was actually a little bit surprised. I didn't realize Michael was sort of trying to speak more broadly in, in this book, which I think was a smart idea. So he says, Some with a material politics who rightly reject the emotional toxicity and shallow analysis of the woke left have fallen into a credulous conservatism that all too often validates the woke brigade's worst suspicions and indeed, and indeed bolsters genuinely bad ideas. It's entirely possible to roll your eyes at denunciations of, quote, problematic comedians and center class in your political analysis while fighting with all your heart and soul against the Trump administration putting immigrant children in concentration camps. If you find yourself reacting to both the policing of comedy and the protest against serious human rights abuses at the southern border as if they were equally unserious liberal preoccupations, you've jettisoned your sense of perspective and lost touch with important left principles, not to mention your basic humanity. We need, what we need is a cosmopolitan socialism premised on real material needs that expresses itself in criticism, art, movement building, and anything else that drives politics. I think he kind of sums it up. It may be a, that might be a little hard for people to understand what I just read, but like basically what he's saying is that a lot of this criticism of the soup sort of superficial woke left, like the worst aspects of the left that even you and me, Abby, would at times find unhelpful or just a poor representation of what leftism is actually about. He's explaining that the people use that as an in or almost like as a weapon to try to brainwash people away from these issues. So like if you're actually think cancel culture against comedians is just as dumb as people not being compassionate about undocumented immigrants, then you're just not coming from a genuine place. It's, it's mm -hmm. in bad faith. So I think what he's trying to do in this book is he's trying to sort of say that maybe, you know, some of this criticism of the left is in good faith, but these people have used those ends, those ones that seem valid in a bad faith way to weaponize it, to try to actually like crush important, valuable left issues. And that's kind of what his book is about, essentially. And I was even surprised in it, Abby, that he, and he didn't, he didn't do this to me alone by reading his book, but 
like I had a slightly different interpretation of Brett Weinstein, who's sort of almost at the center now of being like the most credible of the intellectual dark web. You know, he's not a failed comedian like Dave Rubin. He's not someone who's on record supporting racial profiling and torture like Sam Harris. He's not a lunatic like Jordan Peterson, you know, who, you know, went through a, a very bad bout with uh, benzodiazepines recently. Brett Weinstein seems to almost be positioned now as the most credible guy in this movement. And Michael Brooks does something brilliant, too, when he introduces him in his book. He he doesn't say, like I have actually said, like I have actually inaccurately said this. I have said that Brett Weinstein's whole thing was a stunt, that he just protested that day or that thing at Evergreen just to become some kind of grifter online. That's not what Michael Brooks says about it. And I actually now have come around to sort of agree with Michael Brooks's position that Brett Weinstein actually found something that if you showed it to the rest of America, people would be like, wow, that's crazy. Like the left is crazy. And he used that to falsely represent the entire college protest scene, the entire scene of people who want social justice, the entire scene of left protests in general to associate it with what happened at this very unique liberal art college in Olympia, Washington. And he, and he, Brett Weinstein is smart enough to know that he's done this. And that's sort of a, I mean, Michael Brooks is not exactly saying that in his book, but he is portraying Brett Weinstein as a very clever grifter, you know, who's using something that a lot of people can relate to as being problematic and weaponizing that against the entire left movement. He also really breaks down how Steve Bannon is similarly like a really smart grifter who has tricked people into thinking that he's like a right-wing populist and the Tucker Carlson thing too. And instead of summarizing what he said about it, I wanted to play a quick clip from one of his latest shows about this whole argument um, that we get bogged down in a lot um, about Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson and, you know, the argument between Glenn Greenwald and Nathan Robinson about it. Where I think Nathan is right is that at the end of the day, and this is very specific with Steve Bannon. So I've seen some people say that Glenn, you know, that taking this stupid cheap shot that it's like, oh, so if he listened to the racist more, he would be a real populist. That's obviously not what Glenn is referring to. And that is the type of lazy, bad faith bullshit that disgusts and repulses everybody. What he's referring to is that Steve Bannon has said on multiple occasions that he would, as an example, raise taxes on top marginal earners. He's kind of indicated that he would do something about infrastructure uh, and, and kind of hinted at a couple of other things, which, let's peel it back, would amount to basically Clinton-era sort of third-way economics, ironically. So Glenn is right in terms of what he's pointing to vaguely, but actually the specifics there are wrong. It would not be a, f a fully economically populist policy at all. And the thing that always the basic dividing line, and please watch Dustin Guastella and I go into this, is the relationship to organized labor. Organized labor is the actual fulcrum of alternative power to capital. These guys don't like, you listen to Steve, and this is where if you listen to Steve Bannon or, or, and you look at the policies pursued by these guys, it's country club bullshit. They hate labor unions. Tucker Carlson makes a ton of individually discreet, accurate points about 
inequality and middle class disappearing, whatever, always turns it into xenophobia and race baiting and occasionally a modest policy push, never labor. And Glenn, in my view, is mistaken because yes, if the most economically populist uh, perspective that was being put forward uh, by someone like Steve Bannon was implemented, it would basically mean that there would be some decent uh, stuff on trades, decent stuff on infrastructure and some okay taxation. And that's fine. And that is in no way equivalent to the Bernie Sanders, Ilan Omar, robust for real pro-labor single payer agenda. I have nothing but respect for Glenn Greenwald. And I think he is very consistent in a view that he has of inside outside politics. That's not our view. We have a view about capital versus labor. A lot of things get conflated under that umbrella with left-wing politics. But if you have a serious material class dimension that anchors labor, ironically, for all of the dumb accusations of class reductionism or whatever, it does basically eliminate right-wing populism because right-wing populism posits all sorts of imagined national communities and various other fantasies and does not have a labor analysis. And the last thing I'd say is this. I think we need to be really careful about how we draw this line. Because if we're going to, because what do we actually mean here? I absolutely would completely accept and agree that Trump and Bolsonaro and Duterte and Netanyahu and uh, Putin and Modi and a, a variety of these leaders fit on some type of right wing authoritarian axis. And I think there's no doubt that the Republican project in the United States is absolutely authoritarian to the point of even undermining bourgeois democracies. We were talking about uh, Bill Fletcher Jr. However, I also see other people basically saying though, conflating the policies we're talking about, putting kids in cages, uh, serious appeals to social Darwinism and ethno-nationalism and vague wishy-washy stuff on economics with a much broader reality, which is that most Americans and most people are in some type of weird ideological center. They are not the reactionaries of a Tucker Carlson broadcast, and they are absolutely not like woke, which I guess is the parlance now. A problem and a concern that I have is I think that some people are trying to draw a line so tightly as to what they think, think can, uh, constitutes social conservatism that it will necessarily eliminate most people. As you heard in that clip, I mean, his analysis is just incredibly complex and, and really, really nuanced and thoughtful where you can walk away being like, oh, like, yeah, I disagreed with what Glenn Greenwald said, but like, I still respect where he's coming from. And that's a gift. That's a gift that Michael Brooks had that's really unmatched. And Michael was also, I mean, one thing that a lot of people are sort of remembering of him and his legacy now, I think, I think it's, it's, you know, it's probably cathartic for people too, was his like sense of humor. I mean, I mentioned at the top of the show that there was a joyful energy, even when they were bashing people, Michael was constantly laughing. I mean, he had a, such a memorable laugh. Um, I even sort of like ribbed him about it a long time ago. Like uh, I, I remember thinking just like 
dude, this dude's laughing constantly on the podcast. Like he just, I was almost like sort of <laughs> envious of how much fun he was having, like constantly. Um, you know, one one other thing about him, I think that it's you don't realize because a lot of people on the left have this like idea of being these like hoity-toity sort of stuck-up woke people, you know. But like like on Michael Brooks' own show, he was just having on Adam from Cumtown, which is like a really sort of vulgar you know, not super PC podcast that like a lot of leftists like have actually like turned against now and they like think is like bad. But like Michael, you know, was just having this guy on because he probably like enjoys listening to Come Town. It's hilarious. That's like an important part of his whole thing too. All the impressions he did. I mean, Ob- he did Barack Obama. I mean, how many white guys <laughs> who have a st- good standing on the left would actually take the risk to do an Obama impression. Like, I wouldn't do it. That's, that's difficult to pull it off, you know what I mean? Before we get out of here, Mike, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but can we get some Nation of Islam um, Barack Obama? I didn't know that Nick Cannon had the truth like that. <laughs> I had no idea. I thought he was Black Bob Saget. <laughs> Turns out he's bringing the truth. Parts <laughs> with BLM. Fuck out of our streets. Wants <laughs> <laughs> to contribute money. I like George. So that old devil's giving money. <laughs> Stay at home. Put on a mask. White people are thirty times more likely to get corona, yet we're more likely to die from it. Wonder why that is. <laughs> Look at the pyramid. It says CIA. <laughs> 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 the truth you don't want. <laughs> oh my goodness! So, I mean, so Abby, like, tell us about like what you thought was funny because, like, I mean, he he did many impress. I mean, he did Ruben. Oh yeah. Well, let's put together a quick montage right now because instead of even explaining them, you just need to hear them for yourself. I mean, we can we can play Dave Rubin, Obama, and Bill Clinton because those are I think those are his best, and they just speak for themselves. And I want to let you in on a little something. I'm what in uh, Islamic terminology is called shaitan. <laughs> so same general principle, but Islamic. <laughs> now, I would like to bring a white child on the stage to sacrifice to Almighty Allah. <laughs> Wallah Akbar. He said she would murder my entire family if I didn't marry her at Yale. <laughs> Kidnap my mother. It's Bernie, Bernie or bust. Yeah, Bernie or bust. Uh, Bill Clinton was actually in the media tent uh, after the vote yesterday. He was very upset. Yeah, I heard. I heard also that he his the theory was that what y'all don't understand is that Donald Trump is not a plant for us. Hillary is a plant for Donald Trump. I don't think that you should be having uh, an affair with a 22-year-old uh, girl if you're the president uh, of the United States. I don't know. I don't know. I can tell you try it. I guess you won't be able to try either, loser. Okay, Marion Williamson's here. Um, we don't quote, we don't, all right, no, no questions about phrenology. Uh, not going to talk about <laughs> no social cohesion. Not going to talk about social cohesion. <laughs> it's 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 serious dave time because i'm open-minded and, and you know what's great about this and again no shade on marrying williamson but we're gonna hear about this for like the next year 
It's like, yeah, I know that I had the head and I didn't even know, but I get, you tell me he was a part of a meth lab. Like, uh, Dave Rubin is going to interview, like, the fucking head of the biker gang from Breaking Bad who tells him that his, like, speech was suppressed at, like, a coffee shop in Albuquerque. And then and people go, like, hey, Dave, why did you have, like, the white supremacist head of a meth ring? Well, I, I didn't. I didn't exactly know, but ideas, and I had on Marion Williamson six months ago. That's going to be his stand-in. You know that, right? For me watching it as a one-trick pony with no sense of history or empathy, I found it somewhat confusing and upsetting, but I also didn't know that you were going to be talking about Marion Wright Edelman and actual policy, so I really appreciate that that video exists to give me a comfortable pivot point to talk about something that doesn't require me to do any actual analysis. Even sometimes his callers would try to crack him up, uh, like on purpose. And some guy called up one time. Do you remember when Joe Can- Kennedy did that like terrible Spanish where everybody was like, oh my no. God. And, and he acted like he could speak perfect Spanish or something. So some guy called up Michael Bruce. It's one of the hel- most hilarious clips ever. We're going to play it in the show, obviously. Hola. Hola. Mi amo is Joe Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, Ese? It's Joe. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Check this out, Ese. Check this out. While you guys are sitting there bullshitting about your marks and your left or whatever the fuck bullshit you're talking about, we already planned everything to get back at these pinche Republicans, Ese. Okay, Congressman. Me, my homie Schumer, my homie Pelosi, we're sitting on this Cardinal Health private jet, I mean, uh, Virginia, Virgin Airlines economy class, and we were just, you know, we were just tipping a 40, talking it up, you know, we hit up Jeff Sessions, and, you know, I'm going to use my anti-marijuana policies to blow up the prison population, you know, take away the health care from the poor. We're going to outflank Trump from the right, SA, all Democrat style. <laughs> Well, what Congressman you know Joe that, Kennedy. Yeah, I think I think unfortunately I do know a lot about that. Oh my god. And and I wanted to read something that Sam Cedar said because Sam Cedar's also hilarious. He plays the voice um of a Bob's Burger character. He's also like a very funny comedian, but he said of Michael Brooks, he says I've worked with a lot of great broadcast hosts and some of the most talented comedians in the country and what was unique about Michael was not just his intelligence and insight into politics, but his ability to do genuinely brilliant political comedy. I need less than one hand to count how many people I've come across who had Michael's skill in crafting a funny impression or character that was not only a vehicle for political satire, but satirical in its essence. And when you hear these impressions, like, they're off the fucking cuff, man. Like, these are extemporaneously performed. Like, this Bill Clinton one that, you're, that you heard is insane. What? And the Obama, like the the Nation of Islam, Obama, like this shit's nuts, dude. Like I cannot believe he did this without like scripting them. Did, the one thing I'm wondering, I mean, and I probably should have researched this for the podcast, and I feel like an asshole, but did he actually ever try to be like a stand up comedian or or like to do groundlings or any like sketch comedy or anything? At least what I'm aware of according to Sam Cedar, is that he could have and that he was... I don't think that he was ever trying to be a stand-up comedian, but like the thing is he could have very easily. Um, but I think that he was introduced to Sam um, as you know a funny like intellectual guy who could help him as a producer on the show, and then it just kind of like manifested into 
Sam realizing like, dude, you could seriously just be a stand-up comedian if you wanted to. Like, you don't have to get involved in media and politics, but like he, that's what his passion was. Well, you really have to look at the entire podcasting and radio scene and think, there's so many people trying to be funny. I'm not, I'm not trying to talk negatively about any particular podcast, but everyone wants to be funny. Everyone wants their podcast to be fun and funny. But like Michael Brooks, like legit had actual comic talent. Like I, that, that's why I was asking if he had any background because mm-hmm. yeah, he was funny as fuck. Like it did seem like effortless for him to just drop, not just these impressions, but like just his sense of humor in general. I mean, he would make great jokes on the podcast. And also we should let people know that he'd like filled in for Sam all the time. Like, right. So his show, the Michael Brooks show was more socialist, was more anti-imperialist and majority report. But like his personality was like very memorable. I mean, I, like no, no insult to Sam. Sam is great for what he does, but like I would prefer when Michael would actually host for the majority report. Like when I would see that he was, I would tune in for longer. He was just unique in so many ways. So that's, those are going to be really big shoes to fill also. Yeah. And I, I saw this quote floating around where he said, be ruthless to systems, but be kind to people. And there's so much more that goes into that that I wanted to play for you right now where he's on a panel with Cornell West and he says some really, really poignant things that uh, I wanted to share with you. I just, I just want to add that thank you. And it's an immense honor to be here, including definitely with Dr. West, who is an influence on me. And one of the major reasons that he's an influence on me is because of that synthesis and the ability to hold multiple truths that we have to have some sense of a capacity here to do something with democracy and then also not lie and deceive ourselves about what we are and what capitalism is and what empire is. I came across a speech fragment from Martin Luther King Jr. recently, which I played on my show, and I don't know where or the title of the speech, but I thought it was so important because we've put a lot of work and we still have to put work into reminding everybody that the man was on the left. He wasn't a guy who came out once a year and said everybody should treat each other nicely. He was a serious... But the other thing that I loved about this speech, which was he talked about the fallacy that certain Christians misunderstood love as a seeding of power. And then Nietzsche came along and rejected Christian morality because he thought it was denying uh, someone's vitality, the will to power in a healthy sense. And he said, love without power is sentimental and anemic. And power without love is abusive and corrosive i'm paraphrasing and that was when i saw it i thought well here okay we know the left-wing dr king well here's the machiavellian dr king and i love it i want the left to have machiavelli so that we can have the strategy the ruthlessness the clarity to actually win these battles and be ruthless with institutions and then i want us to learn how to be really kind to each other welcoming of a broad set and actually have a movement that has the capacity to do that that's why the cancel stuff is relevant that katie brought up because it's a stand-in for this eliminationism of other humans which is neoliberalism enacted and it's also a contradiction from when we get utopian it's beautiful we're we're the people who sit around we say why don't we have a world where there's no prisons okay (laughs) that's a radical fucking statement that's a real thing and we should take it seriously but then on the other hand oh well these people could never be part of our coalition because they made a mistake or said something like it's a contradiction in what we're enacting so 
what I get that I hope is in the realm of answering your question from this Dr. King clip was left wing, spiritual, but also with a vision of power. And if we can synthesize those things, I think we will speak to the highest impulses of this country. We will be welcoming to people and we will win. On the Majority Report live stream, his sister, Leisha, said, you know, above everything else, he was just really passionate about everyone having food and shelter and equal opportunities to have a decent life. I mean, apparently they grew up really poor. Uh, Their family was on food stamps. And as I mentioned before, he was obviously a red diaper baby. I mean, the fact that his middle name is Jamal. So he was actually raised by like hippie parents i'm assuming so just because his middle name was jamal (laughs) like fascinating i mean the fact that he was in a revolutionary anarchist youth group when he was just 11 years old you know like all of these things i feel like point to the fact that he grew up pretty in a pretty progressive family yeah it's amazing (laughs) Um, this is how fucking smart this dude was he was accepted to the london school of economics and he was just like nah i i have other shit going on like he didn't want to go you maybe know, by like, that point, imagine? his heart was, I mean, maybe his heart was just somewhere else at that point. Like how yeah. fast was his, uh, like how, how, when did he actually start doing, like before Majority Report, do you know anything about his his political background before then? Was he already no. active? No, I don't, yeah. sadly. I'm wondering um, if that was sort of his indoctrination. I mean, he obviously was already raised by political parents, but I'm wondering mm-hmm. if be just being in that Majority Report world you know, connected into all these other people. Cause it's like that network that they built too. just all those people, all those allies, um, right. all the academics definitely gave and him, the writers. Yeah. Definitely gave him the confidence to do his own show, you know, yeah. at a certain point. Um, but his sister had also some parting words about just like how they were super close. It was like you and me, um, they talked almost every day. Lately, he was really anxiety ridden about the drama unfolding among the left online, about the cancel culture bullshit. And he really just wanted like clarity and focus and intent with his work. Um, And that he hated like this virtue signaling, identity politics obsessed, cancel culture, call out culture stuff going on. Again, like the traits that he had we're so uncharacteristic of this time. Like we live in such a cruel, harsh time where we're just the noise uh, and the pressure is so loud. And he just rose, rose above it all and was just a really, really strong voice to counter all of that. Um, you know, on his channel, like the focus on the global South and Africa. And he has a whole playlist on the Michael Brooks show where it's an illicit history playlist that just features like really short documentaries on everyone from Thomas Sakura to Patrice Lumumba. And it really just, again, is a testament to how much of an internationalist he was, that he cared just as much about what was happening in the global South as he did in the Middle East, as he did here in in the bowels of this fucked up country. I don't want us to go without mentioning, you know, how actually amazing of a writer he was too. Um, and I don't know, I mean, maybe you can tell me, Abby, if he's written books previous to this one. He wrote, co-wrote another book okay. with someone before this one, but this was his first solo book. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it's, I'm I'm kind of glad I read th- this one first then, because his writing is hilarious. I mean, sort of just like his personality was. Uh, it's filled with devastating, biting commentary without coming off as mean-spirited. I had no idea until reading his book, like how much 
he would be able to capture his own voice, like his own voice mm-hmm. from being like the video commentary I used to watch from him. It's hard not to hear it in his voice as you're reading it. So it was kind of like difficult mm-hmm. at times to do. The critiques he makes against these different figures in the intellectual dark web, it's this laser-focused, dialed-in version of all the criticism that he would do on his own show and on Majority Report. And I would dare any intellectual dark web subscriber, anybody who's a fan of Sam Harris, anybody who's a fan of the Weinstein Brothers or even Dave Rubin, to challenge themselves to read this book. I honestly think that it's strong enough where... If it reached those people, if they were sort of brave enough to challenge their own ideas about it, they a lot of them would come away um, having more, adopting more socialist views. I genuinely think so. And he doesn't, you know, just start out by bashing Sam Harris for being a psychopath or Dawkins for being a phrenologist, you know, like I probably would if I wrote a book about them. He's clearly trying to forge a path to actually reach these younger and confused people who are sucked into the IDW. And I think it's just a really valuable thing to do. You can't convince people who are sucked into bad propaganda just by calling them idiots or that they're brainwashed or that they're lonely and stupid. You have to actually appeal to their better side. You know, that's why some of this rhetoric, weaponized rhetoric by the right populist people, the IDW has been so effective because it does appeal to some of those people's better sides in a way that's sort of weaponizing against leftism in general. And I think Michael could see that. And that's why I think his writing is so impressive because it's just a better crafted version of all of his arguments against these people in written form. Right. Right. As he said, like it's all out there and it's up to you to make the best case possible. And that's why it's like, you need to face these ideas head on and argue against them so people take away your case as the correct one. You know, and that's yeah. really really important and we do not do that enough. We do not do that enough. I just wanted to give some final thoughts and end with a quote from Lula and also just another clip from Michael talking about empathy. This was his last broadcast. You know, he looked great, he looked fine, and this was I think if I'm not mistaken the day before he passed on. Um, And it just really, again, like encapsulates how beautiful of a soul this man was, how brilliant he was, how strong his light shined and take away these parting words and really take them to heart. So we'll play that clip at the end. But, you know, as someone who just had a child, who brought a child into this world, it just, it's just really, really difficult Um, because life is so delicate. Our existence is so fragile. And, you know, like our babies grow up to be these people, you know, like my child right now is just is someone who's going to grow up to be this person who's shaped by all of these different things in our lives. And it's impossible to think of reality without the people that we know today, like people like Michael Brooks. And when suddenly they're gone without notice, it's it's almost impossible to accept because you can't let it go. You can't let that constant, what you thought was just always going to be there. Your ego can't let it go because you can't accept how fleeting life is and the fleeting nature of the world and each other and the friendships and relationships that we have and the bond that we share with each other. And it's really, really hard to wrap your mind around. And it's just going to be really hard without him. And I just hope that we can 
we can carry on his work and legacy, and especially with the same humility that he had, because he was such a humble and amazing person. And, you know, and he, and he was guided by love. He was guided by love and laughter. And as Che Guevara said, the true revolutionary is guided by a great feeling of love. And it's impossible to think of a true revolutionary, a genuine revolutionary, lacking that quality. And in a world of so much hate and negativity, like that, that optimism, that love, that genuine passion, and that soulful energy that he brought and that he carried with everything that he did is something that we really, really need to adopt as our own. And um, and I just wanted to to read a speech that Lula gave before he was imprisoned that I really think applies to Michael, applies to everything that Michael was. And I know that Michael really loved this quote from this speech. Not only did he love Lula, and everyone should watch his interview with Lula, but he also played this at his live shows to inspire people, to leave people with that sense of hope at the end. And Lula said, there's no point in trying to stop me from walking this land because I have millions and millions of Bulos, millions and millions of Man Manuelas, of Dilma Rousseffs that walk this land for me. There's no point in trying to end my ideas. They're already lingering in the air and you can't arrest them. There's no point in trying to stop me from dreaming because once I cease dreaming, I'll keep dreaming through your minds and your dreams. There's no point in thinking that everything will stop when I have a heart attack. That's nonsense, because my heart shall beat through your hearts, and they are millions of hearts. There is no point in thinking they will make me stop. I will not stop because I'm not a human being. I'm an idea, an idea that is mixed with all of your ideas. Our comrades from the landless and homeless workers' movements, the comrades from the CUT and union movements know that. This is the evidence. I will obey the warrant, and all of you are going to have to go through a transformation. All of you from now on will become Lula and will walk through this country doing what you must do every day. They have to know that the death of a fighter cannot stop the revolution. Those in power can kill one, two, or three roses, but they will never be able to stop the coming of spring. Rest in power, Michael Brooks. I didn't know Michael personally. I was just a listener, an appreciator of his work and now I'm appreci I appreciate his writings, um, and I'm glad I finally checked out his book. It's a shame that it, it came so late to me. Just remember to tell the people around you, your friends, your family, um, the people that mean the most to you. If you really sit and think, who means the most to you? Even people that you maybe don't even know personally, and value those people, and you know, if you have an opportunity to tell those people how much you appreciate them, how much you love them, doesn't have to be creepy. I'm not saying send I love you messages to your pe the people that host your favorite podcast. I mean, you know, maybe send them a message and just say, man, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. It's incredible. And it's, I, I, I feel guilt almost that I didn't even have the opportunity to tell Michael that. And right. Right. You know, I, I hate to even say anything about myself. It's it's just, I, I just think this is a, a message for, it's a wake-up call for everybody. 36 is awfully young to die. What would have Michael's future career have been like after this first book, where he really knocks it out of the park? I mean, where would he have gone in terms of his ideas, in terms of the people he influenced? That parallel 
reality, you know, I think it maybe it's depressing to see what he could have become, but I think it's also hopeful and partly inspiring. My part is going to be, you know, this intellectual dark web thing. I've had enough of it. You know, I finally reached my boiling point on it. And that's where I'm going to focus my efforts sort of in tribute to Michael Brooks. And that's, that's what I'm, how I'm going to contribute for the time being. I think the takeaway is that if you love and respect and support people, you cannot wait another day to tell them that. You cannot wait another day to tell people how much they mean to you because tomorrow is never guaranteed. You have to live every day like it's your last. I know it's super cliche, but it's 100% true. And this is a huge wake-up call to us all. Put all of that shit behind you and start living your life um, in a different way. In a different way. Um, And I never got a chance to really tell Michael how much he meant to me and how much he meant to millions of others. I mean, he inspired millions of people. And his body of work will continue to inspire millions of people. And all we can do is hope to build upon that that giant void that will always remain. Um, so let's let's end this show with some words from Michael about empathy and the need to embrace that moving forward. What does it actually mean to be truly global to the extent we can, local, national, and international simultaneously, east, west, north, south, but from a place of actual growth and empathy? And this is where, again, this, this questions of consciousness come in. The questions of cultivating empathy, cultivating compassion, cultivating awareness, the complete antithesis of social media modes. Long-term thinking, compassion, seeing complexity, comfort with oneself, solitude, the opposite of an instant gratification, the attempt to constantly humanize and not dehumanize your fellow humans. These are all completely countervailing forces to the market technologic that subsumes all of us today. 